I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silver Core, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silver Core Club, which includes 10 million in North America-wide liability insurance to ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. Before we get into this episode, I want you to know that the Silver Core Club's ultimate firefighter tuition giveaway with the training division in Texas is now live. No strings, no games, absolutely free to enter. All you have to do is write in and tell us why you feel you deserve to win. The training division will provide all of your training, your lodging, your food, everything. All you have to do is get yourself to their location in Texas. This would cost over $6,000 if you paid on your own and it represents a life-changing opportunity to one lucky winner. Full details on silvercore.ca. Today I'm joined by renowned hunter, angler, gardener, cook professional author and lover of guar, Hank Shaw. <laughs> guar! <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Hank. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Man, it's been a while since screaming through the Sierra Nevada in your Subaru while I chowed down on your lunch of salmon collars. Yeah, I know. And it's even been a long time since we met each other in Vancouver for that dinner. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. I enjoyed that. We're, that was uh, abattoir, wasn't it? It was, it was. I yeah. think that was 2018, was it not? Going back a few years. Yeah. Man. And then of course COVID hit. I got, <laughs> I got to imagine with your background and the videos you put out and the podcasts you put out and the books you put out, COVID probably brought a lot more eyes to, to you. Is that a fair assessment? That is a fair assessment. I was just talking to a fellow, uh, food blogger friend of mine. And we're all like shaking our head because everyone got this insane COVID bounce in terms of traffic. However, the flip side of that was that ad revenue rates went in the toilet. So I kind of made out not terrible, but I got this gigantic boost in people like looking for like, Hey, what do I do? How do I eat my lawn? Or how do I go (laughs) hunting? Or, or how do I, you know, catch a fish to eat it? And then da, 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 da. And then, but balanced off with the fact that, that, um, the revenue that was being brought in was pretty, pretty minimal, but you know, that's a minor concern given what was, what we've just all been through. I mean, that's, I can't really complain. Well, why do you think it is that ad revenue would have dropped off yet the demand went up? Uh, because everybody's was losing money. Um, the only people who didn't really take it in the shorts during the pandemic were essential services and things that are entirely online, but, mm. but the biggest advertisers for a website like mine are kind of national brands that revolve a lot around retail. Mm. So, um, I don't really run every individual ad. I just, I work with an ad network and the ad network, um, you know, it's it just, it is what it was, you know, and fortunately things are kind of back to normal, which is weird, right? Because the United States went through this wretched, horrible COVID pandemic, right? Where everybody got it and a whole bunch of people died, but we're actually vaccinating people 
Whereas you Canadians, nobody got it, but nobody's getting vaccinated either. <laughs> you got it. Yeah, don't get me started on that one. <laughs> you, you know, despite the fact that I'm married to a chef who loves to garden and she loves to forage, I credit you with awakening the forager within. Oh. I had no idea. It wasn't even on my radar, going picking mushrooms or looking for wild herbs. And it wasn't even on my radar. The very first time I ever actually picked mushrooms was with you. And that was- Really? The, yeah, that was those porcinis. And man, I had a lot of fun. Oh, I'm really glad that we actually found some because it's not always a guarantee. Oh, we found a crap load. I know. Yeah, it was a pretty good day that day. I remember we get out of the vehicle, you're given a little uh, little lesson. You say, oh, so you look around, here's some of the areas you might find them and look for shrumps. And we're literally just out of the vehicle and you just kick your boot and you're like, oh, like this one right here. I'm like, come on, <laughs> come on. This had to be planned. <laughs> it wasn't, it was just a really good day. And yeah. I mean, you, where you live in, in British Columbia, there's all kinds of really good mushrooming too. Well, slowly I've been getting into it. And I mean, my wife more so, and I just kind of follow her lead because she's doing all the research on it. And but learning that most of the mushrooms actually won't kill you and right. just some will get you sick and take your time and identify that was, uh, that was a big one, but we, yeah, mushrooms um, are kind of an interesting one. They're like, uh, if you take a collection of anything, human beings, whatever, whatever, you're going to find that like 2% will kill you dead. Okay. And 2% you would f get on an airplane to go pick. Yeah. And then there's another percentage that like, eh, you, you might go to the hospital. And then there's another percentage that like, oh, absolutely. If I see him totally picking him. Then there's another percentage that like, yeah, you're going to worship the porcelain God. And then <laughs> on the other side, you're like, oh, if I find him, sure. And I feel like it, I'll, I'll pick him. And then there's this vast middle of bleh. Right. You know, where there's just, they're neither edible nor not edible. Right. You know, I've been... Seeing on uh, Meat Eater, Rinella's really pushing the squirrel hunting. He is, interestingly. <laughs> yeah. And I was, I would never credit myself as a, a voracious squirrel hunter, but I've hunted squirrels and I've eaten squirrels all up until that one day when you said, what is it? Some very minute percentage of squirrels carry the bubonic plague. I haven't oh, eaten that's a squirrel ground since squirrels. then. That's ground squirrels, not Oh, is not that what it squirrels. is? Yeah. So, I mean, the, I don't know that there has never been a tree squirrel with the plague, but, uh, what I'm referring to are groundhogs and, and ground squirrels. They have a much more, a much higher incidence of it. It's still a little overblown. Like, you know, it's, I don't know the actual percentage of danger that you would have if you ate prairie dogs or, or mm. ground squirrels. Um, but I don't just because I, <laughs> I I prefer tree squirrels, which are much cleaner and safer to eat. Okay, so I went hyper You have the Western gray squirrel, don't you? We do, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're good eating. They're very good eating. Other than that fear, I guess now irrational fear, the possible bubonic plague in them. So it's ground yeah. squirrels, got it. Yep, ground squirrels. So they're groundies. They have like kind of a rough on them. And then that you do find them in trees every now and again, but they're climbing up the trees be from their holes and they right. look different. right. Yeah, we've got a lot of marmots up in a few of the areas that I like to go to. Um, mm -hmm. I know people who eat marmots. Okay. Well, I guess squirrels back on the menu. They better watch out. <laughs> so you've got a background, like from a very early age, your mother got you into foraging and gardening. Mm -hmm. And then you got into fishing pretty early, wasn't it? Very early. Very early. Like, I don't, before I can remember. 
so there you are, heavy background in foraging, heavy background in fishing, and you started hunting when? In your 30s? Around 32? Yeah, and uh, when I was 32. Okay. And so, and God, that's eight, 18 years ago now. Despite your background in foraging and fishing, you then go on to write basically four wild game hunting related books. And you're just now writing a book on fishing, hook, line, and supper. Mm -hmm. Yep. How, how come you, what, what made you decide to do it in that order? Primarily, yeah. And I haven't written the fish, the, the foraging book yet either. So a lot of it has to do with familiarity. So I was a journalist for 18 years. So the job of a journalist is to learn a thing, a, your beat, whatever your beat is, and learn it very, very well, and be able to relay what you know and what you learn to your readers clearly and fairly, and and that's that's that's, that's, that's in the essence, that's what journalism is all about, at least mm. as a reporter as opposed to a commentator. And so, given that, I had already hunted for quite quite a while before mm. I even started to put paper to or put pen to paper. But, uh, what I had found was that my first book does have fishing and foraging in it to be, it to does. Be fair. So it it's, does. A, it's, it's got a little bit of everything. So, but I decided to do deep dives into waterfowl with, with duck, duck, goose, with, you know, the cervids and all things antlered and horned is buck, buck, moose. And then with small game with pheasant, quail, cottontail, because I, uh, I find that since I've really started more or less stopped eating domesticated meat with the exception of, um, I have a couple of friends who are very good hog farmers. Mm. So I get some, some really good farmed hog, um, once or twice a year. Other than that, it's pretty much everything in our house has been hunted or fished in terms of the protein. So the daily day by day, week by week, year by year exposure to game animals from all over the North America and you know, in every season you get a really good intimate knowledge and I kind of already had that fish knowledge and I had the reason why I started with ducks is because it's where, you know, you can see the duck, duck, goose right there. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The reason I started with that was because, um, here in California, we have unbelievable duck hunting. And so I had far more experience with that than I did with upland when I wrote that book mm -hmm. and you know, I, I deer hunt every year and I hunt big game every year, but it's not like, um, I'm not like, you know, I've got a friend named John Stallone and John Stallone like lives for big game hunting. He hunts mm -hmm. big game for months at a time and I'll hunt big game until I get one or maybe two. And then I'm like, all right, good. Now I can go hunt birds. Mm -hmm. And so it took a while for me to develop the institutional knowledge to be able to write a, a really quality cookbook about venison. So, so kind of a long way of coming around to those areas were popular. Those areas were things that people wanted to read about. Those are also areas where there is a, a bigger need. Mm. So especially with ducks, I mean, I think ducks are probably the, the game animal that is the most horribly destroyed in the kitchen of anything with venison mm -hmm. being a second thing. And then, then I think, I think a lot of people cook upland animals in a decent way, even without, the help of someone like me. And then that's also kind of true with fish in the sense that pretty much everybody knows how to, you know, fry a piece of fish or maybe slap it on the grill. Mm -hmm. 
Sure. So to write a fish and seafood cookbook, a um, since I've fished in like five Canadian provinces and forty some odd states, and you know for the better part of forty five plus years, right? And I've eaten or cooked and caught, caught, eaten or cooked like five hundred species or something like that. Every time I would write a sentence, it'd be like, "Well, this is true." And then over here in my head, it would be like, well, but there's that other fish that lives in Louisiana that doesn't really act that way. So, yeah. so the, the problem with the, the, the eternal exceptions of the diversity of fish made it difficult to cook. The second thing that made it very difficult to cook is if, or to, to write, is that for every time that I want to write about, say, the Pacific Northwest fish, mm. I have to be cognizant of the fact that, well, nobody wants a recipe for halibut nobody because if you want a recipe for halibut you live where halibut live well guess right. what most people don't live where halibut live so the recipe needs to be applicable to you to me down you know 1500 miles south of you in, in mm -hmm. california as well as somebody in iowa louisiana maine colorado mm. so you had to think about fish in a very different way you had to think about fish as in kind of a galactic sense where you put them in broader buckets where you have, this is a lean white fish. This is a soft lean white fish. This is a very firm one. This is a fatty fish. This is a fatty orange fish, like a salmon or a trout, or as Canadians say, trout. Um, <laughs> I don't know any Canadians that say that, but. I do, They're, they live in Alberta. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My friend Kevin Casawan likes to say trout. Trout, trout. <laughs> And he has a hard time saying trout. <laughs> trout. Yeah. You do it better, actually. Um, I got you know, we're a little closer to the border here. It's true. It's true. But I mean, that, that was the thing. It's like I, I wanted to write a book that is not only useful for everybody, freshwater or salt, but it also really gives you master recipes, um, fundamental skills on cooking any kind of fish or seafood that will then really free you from recipes. Like there are recipes, lots of recipes in the book, but, but they're really sort of structured as if you want a beer batter fresh fish, this is how you beer batter fresh. But if you want to fry fish in like these seven other ways, I've got these seven other ways and they're all mm. tested and they're all, they're all ironclad. And then what if you want to poach fish or grill or cure? I've got a big section on salting, smoking and curing. Because people have been doing that with, with fish and seafood for as long as we've been catching fish and seafood. Totally. Because if you catch things by the ocean, you live near salt. That's right. You know, I, I think that's part of the appeal behind the whole Hank Shaw brand and honestfood.net is the fact that you, you look at the whole process and you look at things differently. You're kind of, you know, you're, you're kind of a counterculture kind of guy, even your website, you got a .net website, not a .com, not a, <laughs> no, you got a .net website, but, but you look at when your contemporaries are out there and chasing big game and posting big, big game pictures and big flashy expeditions, you're talking about pheasants, quails, and cottontails and mm -hmm. how to basically eat stuff that grows out of your sidewalk. And right. you do that in, from a chef's perspective. I mean, you've, 
you've got your uh, James Beard Award winner for your website. That that's a pretty big deal in the uh, in the cooking world. There you go, right in the back. <laughs> oh yeah, you got it up there. I love it, <laughs> man. Yeah, if I had something like that, I'd be flying it loud and proud for sure. That's <laughs> that's kind of kind of like the Oscars for for chefs, isn't it? It is. It is, um, and I'm very lucky and very very proud to to get it. You were nominated, what, in 2009, you're nominated again in 2010, and in 2013, mm-hmm. you got it. That's, yeah. that's massive. Yeah, and it's even cool to be nominated because then you're still on the podium, right? Because they only nominate three. Only three? You know? Yeah, f- for any given uh, category. Right, So right. in any given category, there's going to be three finalists. And so even just to be nominated is a big deal. Wow. So we were actually supposed to do this podcast on Wednesday, tentatively, Mm-hmm. But you have Spanish classes on Wednesday. Not this time. Uh, this time I'm I can't do it on Wednesday because I'm turkey hunting. Because our turkey oh, hunting good is, for you. season has started. Good for you. Well, <laughs> my you Spanish. Of... Uh, I think I have a week off of my Spanish. But we got some pretty good turkey hunting around where you are. We do. They're all they're all Rios except for the far north of the state uh, near Oregon where there's some Merriams. But okay. mostly they're they're Rio Grande turkeys, which. Um, it would be unfair to say that they're the short bus turkey, but they are <laughs> significantly easier to hunt than Easterns. Easterns are notoriously the hardest. So you'd okay. see that in Ontario and then in the American East. Right. So the Spanish lessons, mm-hmm. what's, I, there's a, I've seen the big shift in how you cook over the years and you're, you're getting a lot more of a Spanish and, and Mexican flavor to a lot of the mm-hmm. things you're doing. Are, are you just doing the Spanish lessons primarily to get a better feel for the cooking or is there something more in there? Is yes and no. So uh, I've been fascinated by Mexican cooking in specific and Latin American cooking in, in general for quite a while. And the thing about Mexican cooking, there's two, there's two, two main things. One is proximity. Like mm. it's, it's our other neighbor. There's, you know, three main countries in North America and, and yours is one, mine is the other and Mexico is the third. Mm. And, and so proximity matters, but really, really cemented it was the fact that in my opinion, a great world cuisine has to be underpinned by a great world civilization. Mm. So the reason why that is the case is because you have to have had centuries or if not millennia of a ruling class that can just sit around and have somebody cook for them in fancy ways. And that's sort sure. of the underpinning. And, 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 and it sounds weird and elitist, but it's true if you think about it. Like, is there really good food in, oh, I don't know, Kenya, for example? Sure. Yeah, there's really good food in Kenya. But there was never any big giant civilization like there was in Egypt or in Zimbabwe um, mm. or in Ghana. So, you know, let's just use African examples. Mm. And, in, and in Mexico, you have two You've got the Maya and the Aztecs, not to mention there's a couple other groups that, that are a little bit lesser known, but you've got these major, long-lived, sophisticated civilizations that underpin their food. Mm. And so that connected with the ingredients that they have available. So the area that is now Mexico has everything from the origin of chilies, the origin of tomatoes, um, and they also have, to some extent, potatoes, although those were mostly from the Andes. Mm. Uh, not to mention lots and lots and lots of other ingredients that we use on a daily basis 
you know, corn, beans, and squash, for example. Corn, right. beans, and squash, as we know them, originated in Mexico. Now, they were widely used all the way up to, to southern Canada when white people showed up. Mm. Um, but they filtered north from Mesoamerica. So you have these amazing ingredients. You have these amazing techniques and in, in the civilizations that underpin it. And then they're our neighbor. So I got very, very interested in it uh, some years ago. And then I very quickly realized that if you only speak English, it is like seeing just a shadow of the real cuisine. Mm. Because while there is a fairly large number of Mexican cookbooks written in the English language, there are an order of magnitude more cookbooks written in Spanish. And until and unless you can read Spanish and speak Spanish and really understand Mexico, you know, like actual Mexicans, like it's not just food, ladies and gentlemen, it's the human beings who make it. Right. And you cannot really um, grok, to use a California term, the, the, the cuisine or the people or whatever, unless you speak their language. So that's a prerequisite. And, and when I was in high school, I took two years of Italian and three years of Latin. So those are really good underpinnings for learning Spanish. Mm -hmm. And, and so the goal eventually, one of my best friends uh, is from Monterrey uh, in Nueva Leon, and he lives here in California and runs a restaurant called Nick's Taco. And so Patricio and I, our goal is to write a Mexican cookbook someday. And I refuse to be the gringo who is standing there <laughs> unable to answer questions in Spanish. And because you, you do see this, you see this where there are American or Canadian or other or chefs of any other country that don't speak X language and don't don't really they just kind of parachute into a culture and then and then cherry pick things from it without really fully understanding the whole culture. And I don't want to be that guy. Like um, kidding. I want to be the guy who's like, oh yeah, that's really good. Even if you don't like the fact that I'm a wero, um, <laughs> you have to, I want to be that guy. They're like, yeah, you got to give the devil his due, you know? <laughs> that's fantastic. And I, hope, and I hope people will, will see our book, which is years in the future. Yeah. You know, it's, I hope they will see our book whenever it comes out as a positive thing and, and adding to the overall knowledge. And here's the thing, like if it does well, shit, we're going to print in Spanish too. That's pretty damn cool actually have you already started kind of pre-writing it in your head or do you yeah. Have, yeah yeah it has a, it has a, it has we have some structure for it but it's like i said it's it's a few years off years in the making yeah i, I don't know if i can get behind your uh your love of gore but uh, <laughs> I, I did hear you rocking out to some control machete and uh oh yeah i, I, I can right. get behind that control machete they're yeah. from Monterrey. are they yeah. i didn't know that it's interestingly like a lot of the music a lot of the mexican music i like a lot um mm -hmm. is from that city yeah, like Kinky, Kinky is from that city, and yeah. El Gran Silencio is from that city. Oh. Um, yeah, there's a whole, uh, Jonas in and Plastelina Mosh. Plastelina Mosh, you may know it because there was it had one hit that really made it into the English speaking world was Mr. Okay. P Mosh, Mr. P M O S H, and it was is about twenty years ago, but it was it hit, it got major radio play at least in this country. Did it? I mean, I missed that one. I but yeah, no, CC and you are, <laughs> I always had that on my list of, uh, of songs. If I ever made a movie and there's some Latino gangsters kind of cruising through, that's what would be playing in the background. But, oh yeah. 
Well, they were, uh, of course, heavily influenced by um, by Cypress Hill. That's right. Yeah. Now, I remember reading one time, there's a quote that you had there, and it was, uh, I'll, I'll read the quote. It says, I, I think it's just because Americans fear food, plain and simple. We're probably the nation that is the most scared of our food supply because it's failed us at times. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and that was in regards to people's fear of getting foraging, is it? And get, getting wild game. What, what was the, uh, uh, the impetus behind that one? Cause I just saw that one cut and paste it out and I thought, yeah, that's kind of an interesting one. I think it's really re- more of a reference to the, the general food supply. So, mm-hmm. and that of course bleeds into the wild world as well, because they, the, the thought, the, you know, the general thought, I think this is, this is true in Canada too, where, oh God, they, you know, what if my burgers got E. coli or what if my, mm. my lettuce has listeria and da, 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 da. In, in the thought process with that is, well, if that's the case in a regulated farmed food environment, how much worse must the wild environment be? So that's the thought process. Uh. So, and, and the other, the proximate thing is every time I take somebody on a, on a edible plant walk, I yeah. think, oh yeah, that's edible. That's edible. hundred percent. I, I could, I could eat at the French laundry as much as I want. Mm. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard this, what if a dog peed on it? <laughs> well, well, don't you have a sink? Yeah. <laughs> you can wash it off. Number one, or, or maybe don't pick from the section on the side of the sidewalk. That's exactly. a dog pee level, right? Just exactly. go back a or, little bit. Or, you know, Hey, it's strangely yellowed and, and, and burnt. Like let's, <laughs> let's pick that one, you know? Oh my God. <laughs> That's the thing. Like mushroom poisoning. 50%, give or take, the stats are roughly that, but it's not an exact stat. Sure. Roughly half of all mushroom poisonings are caused by people having panic attacks from eating perfectly edible mushrooms or eating perfectly edible mushrooms that are like rotten or moldy or something uh. like that. Yep. So they're, like, they're not actually eating a toxic mushroom. They're either eating a rotten edible mushroom or they're just freezing up because they don't trust themselves. Interesting. 50% of the time it works every time. Roughly, roughly about that. <laughs> Do you find as you're through your writing and through your website and your books and do you find that you're seeing more people out in the places that you would typically go to? Like, are you kind of, uh, creating your own competition out there? Yeah, I think that's true. I don't, I don't, I think I'm not the only person doing it, but I'm, Hmm. I've been doing this publicly for quite a long time. So, uh, it is why I don't do many plant walks anymore. Hmm. And if I do do them, I do them in public places where it's illegal to pick. Ah, yes. So that if you want to go back there and pick at this illegal spot, that's on you. Hmm. Um, years ago, like where I took you, that's a spot that you could go back, you could go back and you could pick at it. Now, Hmm. I trusted you because you're a Canadian and well, not only because Canadians are generally trustworthy, but yeah. <laughs> difficult access. Yes. Difficult <laughs> access. So yeah, like I would take people and, and we would actually go to a place where we could gather mm. and about 90% were good people and would respect my spots, but that mm. leaves 10%. And when you're dealing with, you know, maybe a hundred people over the course of a year, then that means 10 people are stealing your spots and then that can kill a spot. Totally. And they so, tell their friends or friends tell friends. And then that's the, oh, that's the thing. That's like, 
people don't get that. So here's here's etiquette. Like if you're listening to this outside, here this is this is this is true true knowledge I'm dropping on you. If either of us or anybody takes you to one of our spots, it is for you and you only. So if I take you to my mushroom spot and you want to return to that mushroom spot, you need to ask me if you can return to my spot and you don't bring mm-hmm. other people. 100%. Unless you have 100% trust in that other person that that other person is never going to, to burn your spot, which is very difficult to do because there's even good friends who'd be like, oh, no, oh, yeah, I, I posted it on Instagram with a geotag. tag. You're like, right. your hose now. Yeah. No, I, I get behind that 100%. You know, we, we caught some heat you know April Vokey. Uh, mm-hmm. you've yeah, actually, April, I was on her podcast, and April and I are going to do our first virtual book event uh, in May together. That is so sweet. Yeah. That is so cool. So uh, when she was with Meat Eater, we did mm-hmm. a video uh, doing some crabbing and just ha- hand-picking crabs. And although we didn't give any locations and we're very careful about making sure it was just like views of the water, mm-hmm. man, we caught some heat from people who were local in the area and they could kind of pick it out. And it's, it's something that has to be taken very, very seriously. You don't want to get these spots kind of burned out. Yep. At least, at least with crabs, they, they move. Like totally. I've had my clam spots just raped. It yeah. was the worst. It was the worst. Like I went there and it was, it was money. Like you, you, you would get your limit of clams. Absolutely. And mm. then I, I took a few people there and it was gone. Yeah. It's gotta be tough. Well, I, I guess that's part and parcel with getting the information out there. Even if you're yep. not giving them your secret spots or locations away, you are encouraging people to get out there and search mm-hmm. for themselves. And I don't mind that. I mean, uh, there's a, again, if you want to swing back to meat eater, uh, very recently, uh, Steve Rinella's brother said something to the effect of like, well, I don't know that we want more to be recruiting more hunters which caught a lot of flack actually. And mm-hmm. I, I think that. they did a retraction. I can't remember. But anyway, um, there is that theory out there. Though. There's a lot of people who are established who, and you see this nimbyism with, with all things in human experience. It's like, I got mine. I'm going to shut the door behind me. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that's very fair. It's just not very fair for, for anybody, especially if what you're doing is you're teaching them how, you're basically teaching them how to learn themselves. So I don't, necessarily this is why i will take somebody to or or talk to somebody about a public area where maybe isn't legal to to hunt or fish or whatever Mm. but i'm going to show you what it looks like like if you see this habitat if you see this kind of rock structure if you see this kind of of you know area in the marsh Mm. that's kind of what you're looking for and yeah it does it get them close it sure does and it helps them be successful on their own so they can find their own spots. And yes, of course, there's a great example. Um, I didn't take you there, but uh, on the coast of California, there's everyone's secret spot. And I'm going to say it because it's it's just hilarious. So uh, over the last 10, 15 years, I have had people, hey man, you know, like the secret spot, it's Mount Vision Road and Point Reyes National Seashore. <laughs> I, I have heard that. A dozen times from different people who don't know each other that that's their secret spot. I'm like, dude, really? Like everybody on the planet knows that that particular place at that at a particular time has porcini on it. Right. But in, you know, it's it's not a secret. So, 
So that kind of stuff, like at least it gets them to like, that's what it should look like. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll be honest. I mean, I don't, you know, yeah, there's more, there's more pressure here and there, but I don't think it's that bad, you know? And even if, if it does get that bad, people are doing something positive. Like I'd rather that than, you know, yeah, you know, there's a million things that they could be doing that is more harmful to not only the environment, but to, to my experience doing my thing. Have you heard of the, a fellow by the name of Shane Mahoney? Oh yes. Yeah. Okay. Santa Claus. Santa Claus. Yes. I think he's from Ontario, isn't he? Uh, he's from Newfoundland actually. Oh, he's a Newfie. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. He's gotcha. a Newfie. You wouldn't guess it by his accent. Okay. And little Irish comes out when you talk with him. Little Newfie can come out, but for the most part, man, he's a hell of an orator. Not he like can... Lori from Cod Sounds. <laughs> That's right. I love Lori. She's got the best accent. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was saying something circling back to about talking about recruiting hunters and he's talking mm-hmm. about the North American model of conservation and right. he said, Everyone talks about, we got to get more hunters. We got to recruit hunters. We got to get women into hunting. And he's taking a, a different approach as opposed to saying, oh, we got to get these more hunters out there. So we have more people on our side to fight the other side who would be anti-hunting. Mm-hmm. He says, why don't we ride a trend that's already moving as opposed to trying to stop the flow of the water, get on the water and ride it down. And that trend that he's looking at is food essentially. And he, and he set up this, mm-hmm. he, uh, so he's got conservation visions and the wild harvest initiative. And I thought it was kind of an interesting concept. So it's not that you need more hunters. You need more people to understand why hunters hunt and to appreciate where their food comes from and understand why they should care about their food. I thought that was really interesting. And when yeah. he was saying that, cause I did a podcast with him recently when he was saying that you sprung to mind because that's sort of your whole thing. You, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you're taking it from a conservation approach, but it's, it's what you're doing. You're, you're getting people excited about something that's already something that's sparked in their curiosity. I, I think, I, I don't know that I take it specifically from a conservation perspective, although I, I, I'm aware that it is important. So the ancillary is kind of like, um, it would be an add on to what Mahoney is talking about is that when you are invested as a gatherer or an angler or a hunter, you have skin in the game in the places in which you do your thing. Mm -hmm. So what Mahoney is talking about, I think, is that, so here's me. I'm I'm a guy who does these things. And um, like we mentioned off the air, there have been years where I have um, where I have hunted more big game meat than I, that I ended up could use in a year. So right. I distributed that big game meat as gifts to friends and family. And so there, everybody who does these things, gathering or angling or, or hunting has this halo around him or her who, uh, people who can appreciate the gifts from the wild. So everybody who receives those gifts or who does the actual thing has skin in the game of keeping the environment as 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 healthy. Healthy is probably a good word for it. Mm. It's possible. Um, if you are an urban dweller, typically it's an urban dweller, mm. uh, who has zero connection to the wild world, if you ignore it, it'll go away. And they don't have any connection to it whatsoever. So what that means is they don't have, there's no real reason to value it. 
except as a pretty thing for that they see in TV commercials, or maybe they drive through it once in a while. And the interesting thing about that view is because there's quite a lot of urban dwellers who, who say they feel quite strongly about the environment, is that when you don't live in it or don't participate in it, you view it as a museum to look at and not mm. as our home. Mm. And it's our home. We're every we're just animals, you know. Mm-hmm. We're we're hairless monkeys with with thumbs, and <laughs> and we're just a little bit more clever than most of the other animals. Just a little bit, mm. you know. Like think about it. If dolphins had thumbs, we'd be in trouble. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. So um, the fact that we're incredibly divorced from our natural origins is something that's the larger picture of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to have more people have more skin in the game so that when it comes time to, I mean, you're seeing this, you're seeing this in American and Canadian politics to some extent um, where, yeah, there's even staunch conservative Republicans when some other facet of the Republican party wants to um, wreck a natural spot for usually mining and gas, sometimes logging. Um, then, but they're hunters, you know, they're staunch conservatives, but they're hunters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're like, no, you can't do this. You're going to wreck the spots because they have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. And so that's a way for, um, I guess wise uses one word for it. There's a lot of use, you know, buzzwords for it, but, but in a, in the, the, the bottom line is the, the perspective of, of the wild world as a home to not don't mess your home up versus a museum to never touch. Like a great example mm. is logging. So there are lots of ways that logging can be done to the advantage of, of the forest. Mm. It's selective logging. And in some cases, like especially in the East grouse, for example, grouse really dig clear cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and historically before we showed up, um, that would have been a, a, a side effect of uh, microbursts and storms, which would knock down a whole bunch mm. of trees at the same time. So then once humans showed up, you're talking about Native Americans and, you know, and First Nations people, you are talking about managed use of fire. Mm. So for a hundred years, I, I don't know about Canada, and I think it's the same in Canada, but in the United States, we had a no fire at any time policy. Right. So what that did is that that allowed the understory of our Western forests to get so thick that when you do have a fire, you get what's called a ladder fire and it will wreck a forest. Whereas mm. when the natives were there, they were like, yeah, yeah, we're going to burn this stuff at the right time. And we're going to run this fire through. And it's essentially like a brass and little stick fire. And it's, mm. it's not that hot and it goes really super fast and it clears out that underbrush and it actually helps trees and it helps a whole bunch of conifers actually set seed. Like there's a whole bunch of conifers that won't actually, their seeds won't germinate unless they've been burnt mm. or charred. You know, obviously they can't be incinerated. But right. But the, and then that's the thing. It's like when you get these big old ladder fires through like, oh no, it's a museum. We can't touch it. Then what happens is the fire burns so hot, you burn the seeds to a crisp. And then that you, right. you've gone the other way. So I mean, that's just sort of one little example of, yeah, you know, we live here and sure we can mess things up, but we can also be an agent for positive change. Mm-hmm. I think what Shane said is something along the lines of it's not that there's a different set of rules for the animals. And for me, the issue is, is that 
I am one of the animals. Right, exactly that. For people to get skin in the game, mm-hmm. 32 years old, you started hunting. Yep. What kind of tips would you have for a late onset hunter? Because we get people calling up saying, ah, you know, I, I never, I didn't have hunting in my family. I'd never be able to pick it up. I'm never going to be able to master it. Maybe I'll dabble a little bit. And I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's true. And case in point yourself, I mean, what, what would you tell people to look at and concentrate on if they wanted to, uh, awaken that interest in themselves? Uh, well, number one is to try the fruits of the labor. Mm. So first and foremost, if you want to be involved in gathering or angling or hunting, you need to enjoy the fruits of that labor. So you have to, I, I think most people have bought fish mm. from that. And most, this is, you know, this is side note. Um, fish is the primarily wild food that the world still eats. Mm-hmm. It's the last gathered food. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's, you know, obviously the wild mushrooms, but that's kind of a boutique product where most of the people listening to this, if not all of the people listening to this have eaten wild fish. Mm-hmm. So that's number one, uh, for gathering wild mushrooms would probably be a good way to go about it. Um, if you live in the East ramps or fiddleheads and, you know, there are some commercially available wild food products that you can buy. Um, and then with hunting, typically you have to have a friend who does it. However, you can try farmed game, which is a game meat that it's not really wild game because it's because of that North American model that Shane Mahoney is talking about. You cannot, you haven't been able to buy real wild game from North America for over a century. It's mm-hmm. been illegal. Mm-hmm. Now that said, there is a company called D'Artagnan where they will sell British game online. It's expensive. But it's real, real wild game. I mean, it's, you know, pellets and all. Mm-hmm. Um, so the you kind of got to get your feet wet, and that's kind of how I got into it. Was um, as a child, I had the privilege of being a, a sort of a situational only child, because so, my my next sister is seven years older than I am. So mm-hmm. it was just me and and my mom and my stepdad for quite some time in the house, and so they really like to eat at nice restaurants. So when the only the one kid in tow and a kid who liked good food, uh, I got exposed to game meats in a very high-end setting in Italian and re- French restaurants in New York City back in around, around 1980. Mm. And so I always had it in my mind a um, that game and, and squab and duck and goose and venison, they were always luxury foods. They're always high-end foods. Right. And so then flash forward, my friend Chris Niskanen, who is the outdoor writer at the newspaper that we both worked at in Minnesota at the time, he started just giving me a duck or giving me some pheasants or giving me some venison. And because I knew how to cook and because I had this early experience with high-end game meats, this is, this is, I'm like, I, I got to have more of this, you know? And I'd already fished <laughs> and gathered things for my whole life. So... I knew what the end result was going to be before I got and did the hard work. So the hard work mm. for hunt, hard work, hunting is hardest of the, all of the three to get involved in. Now with gathering, it's probably the second hardest because, uh, let's just knock fishing out first. Fishing's easy. Hire a guide, do what they say. Don't cut right. the guide. And, yeah. <laughs> and you will eventually catch fish and you will, you'll, you know, you buy my book. Hook, line, yes. and supper. Available wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> Get it? 
Uh, if there's anything like the other books, it's going to be fantastic. It's, it's actually going to be better. Um, well, I look forward because to of the, my long experience with this stuff. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. Um, there's lots of information out there for the budding angler. It is a, it is a pursuit. I mean, it's one of those things where the difference, a real true angler is not just a person with a rod and reel in his or her hand. Um, but you can start like that. Mm-hmm. So similarly with gathering, um, I always tell people to start with your own property. Okay. Start, start with learning the names of the plants that are on your property. You will find that probably 50% of them are edible in some way, shape or form. Hmm. Unless you, of course, you only have grass, which is weird, um, yeah. but some people do. And find, and even the process of learning the names of those, um, it will open you to this world. Like, so there's homework involved in, in gathering because there are poisonous plants. Not many, but there are poisonous plants. And there's a couple of families, notably the carrot family, um, mm-hmm. which has hemlock and it's got water hemlock and... You know, so there, there are toxic plants in that category. So you're like, oh, okay, this family. But first of all, you have to know that it is a family of plants mm-hmm. and, and that they're all related in some way and that, and that they share structure. So yes, there's some homework involved, but you can do that in your couch. Um, there are apps like iNaturalist or I, I forget what they're called, but they're okay, but they're the kind of the Wikipedia of gathering in the sense that know that i'm going to trust it 100 percent. like mm. i don't know that i'm going to trust my life on a cell phone app when i'm in the woods right so, right <laughs> so use it as a tool and this is the thing i mean this is a you know you have to learn how to learn and and, and and many any decent college will tell you how to learn how to learn which is to say that's one source mm. work with other sources i can tell you that if you live anywhere other than where you and i live mm-hmm. in other words the, the west coast um, the books of Sam Thayer, he lives in Wisconsin, are very, right. very good. Um, he's got three or four out, um, and they are, they're worth, their, you buy them, they're worth every penny. Mm. And they, they, uh, um, they involve plants from about the Great Plains to the Atlantic Ocean, from about the boreal forest all the way down to northern Florida. Mm. Now with hunting, that's the hardest. So you have to really want to be involved because hunting, the act of hunting is the hardest of the three and the aftermath of the hunting is hardest of the three and the skill set you need to to know is the hardest of the three. Mm-hmm. So I highly recommend you start with, well, what's the result? Do you really like venison? Do you really like upland game birds? Do you really like squirrels? Do you really like ducks? Um, then that will start your, your journey. Mm-hmm. And when you decide that this, these, this is the thing or these are the things that I want to pursue, number two, do they live where you do? So I might want to hunt grouse and pheasants all I want. They don't really live in California. I mean, mm. there's, there are a few wild pheasants and there are a few wild grouse where I live, but it's really, that's not really what you do if you live where I do. You, right. you hunt ducks and geese. And that's important because if I was a dedicated tuna fisherman, which I used to be, I wouldn't live where I live now mm-hmm. because I have to go a long way to even get on a boat to, to fish for tuna. Mm-hmm. I have to go a long way to, to hunt a rough grouse or a woodcock. So proximity 
is important because if you have to travel, you'll do it once or twice a year and like, meh, you know, I mean, you'll only at best be a dilettante. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you have to learn your weapon, whether it's a shotgun or a rifle or a bow. You have to learn your weapon and you have to be good at it because you, this is, this is, this is really important because you can't unshoot a bird. You can't Mm -hmm. unshoot a deer. And so you owe it to yourself and to the animal that you are pursuing to be a clean killer. And it sounds harsh, but it's true. So flip the script for a second. If I'm Mr. Deer walking around in the woods, would I rather be shot in the heart and be like, oh my God, I'm dying and then dead? Or would I rather be shot in the liver and die over the course of 24 hours? I think you know the answer. You know, both suck in the end because you're dead, but one's a harsher, nastier way to go. Mm -hmm. And... If you're constantly behind on your birds, and which is the big, single biggest problem for, for beginners, they're behind on the bird. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say, if you're new to hunting any bird, if you're going to miss, miss in front of it. Mm-hmm. And if you just think that, you're going to be a better bird shot. Mm-hmm. And, and I have actually missed in front of birds where you see the bird go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, put the brakes on. It's like Daffy Duck and I don't know air how they see the pellets. I think they feel the air or something coming at them or something. But anyway, mm-hmm. you owe it to be a marksman. And whatever it is that you do. And that, that requires practice. You have to practice at that. Mm-hmm. And so that's your homework there. And plus you have to learn the habits of the animal, where the animal lives. None of this is, is plug and play. The closest to plug and play you get is a party boat for fishing. Mm-hmm. And, and all of this is, is, becomes part of who you are. So 30 years ago, eh, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, I, have, I defined myself in a large part as a runner. Right. So he's a very good distance runner. And, you know, I would walk in the room and somebody, well, what are you? I'm a runner. You know, I'm, yeah, I'm a journalist, but yeah, I'm really a runner. And you kind of do that with hunting and fishing and, and, and gathering as well. It, it, it becomes part of how you define yourself because it's not just something that you pick up and put down. Mm-hmm. You can do that with fishing, but you really can't with anything else. And if you do with hunting, cause I've seen him, I've, I've seen him where, We'll do guided hunts, which where I cook and you know I help guide sometimes and, and process animals and stuff. And you'll see people who have like, yeah, they're really just here for the food and they they hunt maybe once a year or twice a year. That's fine in that environment because we are doing the very level best to make sure that everything comes out okay. Mm-hmm. But that's not really a hunter. Mm-hmm. That's a shooter. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, it's a heck of a commitment. That's for sure. It is. Uh, so small game or big game? What's your favorite? Small game, hundred yeah. percent. Like I like hunting deer, and I like like I put in for an oryx in in New Mexico this year. I don't know if I'm going to get it, but um, you know I put in for big game th- stuff because I think it's exciting. It's an adventure, mm-hmm. but it's it's a lot of it's serious business. Mm-hmm. You know, elk hunting is serious business. Mm-hmm. Um, even deer hunting is serious business, whereas. You know, you can go out duck hunting and sure, it's serious because you're actually, you're killing animals to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's somehow more, it's somehow lighter. It's somehow, um, nobody's a pissed off or serious when you're hunting pheasants. If you are, you're right. not somebody I want to be with. You're doing it wrong. Yeah, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> and plus, I mean, just from a very specific, forget the actual acquisition of the protein for a second. And, and big game is all red meat. 
period, mm. end of story. It's all lean red meat. Now there mm. are some differences. Like I shot a nail guy last year and that was pretty cool. Um, it's a bovid. So it's more related to the cow than it is to the deer. Mm -hmm. So the fat is more like beef tallow than it is like deer fat, which means it does not coat your mouth. Interesting. So it was very lean, but the fat that it had was amazing. So that was kind of a neat little thing, but it's still, it's, it's basically beef. It's like Mm. super, super lean grass fed beef or small game. You have the diversity of color. You have the diversity in texture. You have the diversity in flavor. You have some of the strongest. No, you have the strongest flavored wild animals that we eat in the small game world. Ptarmigan. Mm. Muskrat. Um, sharp-tailed grouse. Right. You know, squirrel has a, a significant flavor. I like it, but you know it's a squirrel. Yeah. Like if you braise squirrel, you're like, that's not chicken. It looks <laughs> yeah. like chicken. It's not, doesn't taste like chicken. So you have these um, powerful flavors and, and this is where you would talk about gamey meat in the sense that um, that it's gamey in the way that the meat, that word was meant to be used in the sense that it's a, it's a meat that has its own flavor as opposed mm. to off. Right. So that's an interesting thought too. I've seen discussions and arguments over what makes game meat taste gamey where some have a very strong gamey flavor and some don't. And I think, Mm -hmm. uh, Ranella did some stuff testing meat by rubbing a knife on a scent gland and then cutting the meat with it to see kind of what flavor that would impart. (laughs) And some people will be put off by the whole gamey flavor and, uh, some meats will taste stronger than others. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts as to what will make one game meat that tastes gamier than the other of a same species? I actually wrote an entire article on it. If you Google the words gamey meat, yeah. you will see my article on it. Oh, well, there we go. Um, so the short version is this. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's a number of fa- things that affect flavor and the strength of the flavor. Number one is diet. Okay. So a sagebrush eating animal is going to be more strongly flavored than a animal that eats farmed grains. Uh, two species, which is sometimes also deals with diet. So a whitetail in Iowa is going to eat GMO corn. A whitetail in the Sonoran Desert of Arizona or Mexico is going to eat whatever it is it can find mm. in the Sonoran Desert. It's going to taste radically different. They're mm. both the same species different different region so now you got ducks there are i don't know how many 20 some odd ducks that we hunt there's a lot (laughs) a lot of different species and they range from they range from scoters and sea ducks and harlequins which are the most pretty but most disgusting duck on the planet (laughs) they're vile never had one they stink um i mean if you skin them you can eat them but like basically this is like newfie food you know they eat turds um (laughs) And ranging from them to, um, to pintails, which are never bad, wood ducks, which are never bad to then you've got the, you know, ducks like a mallard, which can be anything from vile to sublime, Mm -hmm. depending on now again, diet and diet also involves region. So even within California, you've got widgeon on the Humboldt coast. So the North coast, it's visually exactly the same as British Columbia, and they, these particular sets of widgeon fly up and down the coast and they eat 
sea lettuce and seaweeds mm. and stuff. They are legendarily disgusting. Mm. Like disgusting, horrible, just stinky, stinky, stinky. I mean, yeah. yes, you can skin them, but however, same species, if it flies inland and ends up in the rice fields where I live, it's unbelievable. It's one of my favorite yeah. ducks in the world because it eats rice there. And same bird, same region, different diet. Interesting. So there's one other big thing that affects gaminess in terms of just no matter what you do with it, because we're not, we haven't really discussed game care yet. Mm. Um, but, and that's hormones. So it is 100% true that a ruddy buck is going to taste differently from a buck that is after the rut or before the rut because of hormones. Mm. Now, stress hormones are a big deal. And anybody who raises animals for food knows this. This is why the, the, the meat industry has developed enormous protocols to make sure that the animal that is about to be killed is as calm as possible. Mm. Because you can taste adrenaline. Just like, you know, you hear they'll say you can smell fear, which mm -hmm. you can, because it's, you know, there's, there are hormones and, and things excreted through the skin. Right. You can taste adrenaline. Huh. So people who shoot running deer or running pigs or running antelope, that's going to be a different flavor from an antelope that never knew what was coming. And people who shoot ruddy bucks, um, which is unfortunate because everybody wants to, because that's when they get really dumb. Mm -hmm. Like it's, if you've ever watched videos of, of ruddy bucks, it is exactly like watching 23 year olds in a nightclub at about midnight. <laughs> All they're doing is staring at the girl's ass yeah. and they're like, oh, let me look at that. Oh, that's pretty. And, <laughs> and they're doing dumb things and they're fighting each other. And it's, just, it's, it's anybody who says, oh yes, we're so much more elevated than animals. Like, yeah, you should just look at that. <laughs> it's pretty much the same. That's funny. So yeah, that, that affects a lot. And then there's game care. I mean, I'm assuming everybody is taking care of their game cleanly and nicely and with ice and cools and, you know, that kind of stuff. So bad game care can cause off flavors in a hurry. Um, Putting game meat on a tarp is one thing I've heard is uh, a big no-no and then other people will, will do it. Some people lay down boughs of branches and so they can put their game meat on that because they say the tarp will infuse a terrible flavor into the game meat. I don't know Not about that. Not unless it's a disgusting, dirty tarp. Right. Like if you wash the tarp in between hunts, you're fine. Right. Like yeah, kind of makes I mean, sense. if you enclose it, if you make a bag out of the tarp and the, the meat sort of stews in its own heat, it's, you know, then yeah, that's bad. But yeah, just laying totally. it on the tarp, that's just nothing wrong with that. You know, I know a fellow and he's, he'll get a whole bunch of ice and he'll put it inside the, uh, the cavity on his deer and then washes it all out. And I, I don't, he, he swears by it. I can't imagine that's the best game care method out there. It's not ideal because, and this is why, because the, he, I mean, assume he's not talking about big blocks ice. No. And even if he did, where ice touches meat, it, it damages meat. Right. Um, when ice melts, uh, once the meltwater gets above 40 degrees, it becomes a reservoir for bacteria. And there's mm -hmm. lots of bacteria in, the, in a cleaned gut cavity. So, I, but let's assume he's hunting where I do in the A zones where you can hunt a deer in hundred degrees of weather. Mm -hmm. So if, if you were to gut that deer, take the tenderloins out because otherwise tenderloins are going to get hit by ice and wrecked. Mm -hmm. Um, and you threw a bunch of ice in the cavity for like an, I don't know, half hour, an hour. That's not going to hurt anything. It'll cool mm -hmm. the carcass down pretty quick, but soaking, that's right. an entirely different story. It's that's a Texas thing. 
they do that in Texas a lot. They like they will bury a game a skinned game animal in ice. And okay. yeah, what they're like, oh, it takes all the blood out. I'm like, yes, it does. And as long as it's say it's under forty, it's it's food safe. But it results in a very white, washed out meat that lacks any kind of flavor. And if that's yeah. what you want, go for it. But most people don't like that. Okay. Well, while we're on the topic, I've got another fellow and he says talking about hanging meat, mm-hmm. hanging your big game. Mm-hmm. And I always approach it from the sense that hanging or aging your meat is an enzyme related thing that helps break down the tissue. I might be wrong. Uh, he approaches it from it's the weight of the animal and that's why you don't hang a lighter animal as you would perhaps a heavier animal. The weight will help stretch out the tissues and help break it down. Wrong? wrong. Yeah, he's just wrong. Okay. I have to play this for him. Now I'm not saying that there is zero mechanical effect of, of, of aging, but that's not what aging does. Like, no, it's, it's enzymatic. It's enzymatic. And, um, in some ways I'm trying to think how, like, I'm trying to make him right somehow. And if you were to make him right, he's kind of, he may be observing an effect that he's not, that isn't that, that what's going on. So, so if you hang a deer, let's say, say blacktail, because yep. we're both on the West coast. So you're hanging a blacktail in a garage. The mechanical effect of hanging that deer in, the, in a proper temperature mm-hmm. um, will just let it get through rigor. You know, it'll mm-hmm. take a day, two days, sometimes, sometimes three days to get through rigor mortis. Mm-hmm. And when it gets through rigor mortis, that's that's not mechanical. But mm-hmm. the hanging process keeps will keep the deer from like doing this, right? Mm-hmm. Through rigor. Um, it'll keep everything stretched out. But I've, you know, I've put skinned quarters in in a cooler above ice say so it's not touching it but it's cool mm-hmm. and they don't curl up so i i know it's it's as 100 percent enzymatic you hope it's not bacterial because um you you can get that there's a thing called bone sour with things like elk and moose right where there's so much heat in the animal that even if you skinned it and hung it um it can still go south right mm. at the ball joint of the hip usually. Mm. Um, and so typically what you'll want to do on a big ass animal, especially if it's in a hot weather is open that meat up. So quartering is fine, but mm. even then, like I've seen, I have seen the thighs. So the, the full hind leg haunch of a moose or a, or a nil guy or an elk, it'll rot at the bone. So what you do then is you, is you take, you just say you have a hind leg, Mm-hmm. And you you make a cut from the ball and socket joint, tapping your knife on the femur bone all the way to the the knee, mm-hmm. and then just you can kind of just open up that meat just a little bit. You're gonna make that cut anyway to to debone the the leg anyway, but it just it yep. adds another angle to cool off the interior of that meat because that meat because like you know it's you know you can't even it's huge it's it is this thick <laughs> 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 and and it needs time and 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 the ability to cool off very quickly. So, but yeah, this is, it's not mechanical. It's, it's within the meat. Cause you can, you can stick a piece of meat on a rack and through enzymatic action over the course of several days at 33, 35 degrees, uh, anything under 40 is okay. Okay. Um, and it will loosen up and it'll get tender. Now, real aging, 
real aging is 100% enzymatic. And that's, then you're talking three weeks okay. minimum. So the, the, all of the studies show that if you dry age a piece of meat, and by the way, you only dry age things that you're going to cook medium rare. There okay. is zero reason to dry age a shoulder or a neck. Mm. You could, it's not going to hurt it, but you, you braise those anyway. So what's right. the point? So you, you dry age things like a hind leg or the back strap and nobody can really tell the difference between something that's been aged like five days and something that's been aged 14 days. Mm. You start to notice once you get to be about 20 days. Okay. So, and in fact, it's a, it's a, it's a logarithmic curve. Like it goes from eh, kind of whoop and, and then, um, once you get to be all the taste study taste studies that I have read say three weeks the sweet spot for broad acceptance and and pleasurability of eating that meat mm. three to four once you get past four weeks you start to get kind of cheesy notes um, okay. I don't know if you've ever had really super 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 aged beef um, but it's cheesy it's sort of blue yeah. cheesy yeah um, and not everybody likes that you, that's an acquired taste right. So that'd be like a Rene Redzepi sort of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, that milk cow that he did. Yep. Yeah. No, no, I think that was Magnus Nilsson. Oh, was it Magnus? Yeah, I think it was Magnus who did Okay, that. yeah, that's right, that's yeah. right. So birds, I had one guy say mm -hmm. he likes to hang his birds uh, until their heads fall off, then he knows okay. they're done. stop, stop, stop. <laughs> so you had one guy who says that he does it? I've never seen him do it. Does it? I've never seen him do it. He says, oh yeah, this is how you do it. Mm -hmm. I've never seen him do it. Of course you haven't, because nobody does. Thank it's a, you. It's a, it's a rural myth. Thank you. So as far as I know, this originated in the eternal fight between the French and the English, of which you Canadians are very aware of. <laughs> <laughs> so it used to be said by the English that the French would hang their pheasants until their heads fell off. And it used to be said by the French, in French of course, that the English would hang their pheasants until their heads fell off. As some sort of denigrating kind of like... <laughs> That's true. Now that said, you do hang you do hang um, birds quite a while. So, mm. You know, you can hang them in the right conditions for a couple of weeks. I don't, because again, you get to that high game, that sort of cheesy, mm. um, funky, really funky aroma mm -hmm. that you either like or you don't. I like five days. Um, five days with the wild pheasants are really good. That's like the three weeks with the with the beef or the venison. Five days under 40 degrees. Yes. Well, it doesn't have to be under 40 degrees. In fact, pheasants um, and upland game birds, and I don't fully understand why. I don't fully understand. I need to look into this. But but red meat aging is always done very close to freezing mm. and below 40. Bird aging, and this is, includes things like rabbits in England. I don't really age rabbits, but the people who do, they want it just below 60. So it's much more similar to the, um, to the aging of salami. So you don't age salami under 40, or if you do, it takes exponentially longer for that salami to be worth eating because mm. you don't get that ferment. Mm. That is bacterial action. Um, and so they're, they're the sweet spot in the bird studies, because there's been a lot of them because they, you can sell wild game in, in the United Kingdom is that 55 is your sweet spot because above 55 you start to get listeria bacteria growing okay and over 60 the listeria kind of take over which is bad right but this between 50 and 55 is the ideal temperature for birds 
which I find fascinating because it's like 34 or 36 for, for red meat. Interesting. Not entirely sure why. It could yeah. be the feathers. It could be the, the fact that you're, you're, you're aging a bird whole. Um, now the caveat to that is you can't age a goose or a turkey or something of that size without cutting it. Mm-hmm. Um, all the others you can, you can gut or not. Okay. And you, and I don't, you, you don't gut. No, because I mean with a pheasant or a grouse or something, I don't, because it is a lot harder to pluck a bird that has been gutted than it is a, a bird that is uh, where its skin is intact. That's a good point. And the skin's where all the flavor is. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, like <laughs> if you're going to age it, you, you better damn well pluck it because otherwise, yeah, boy, why did you just go through that exercise, you know? A hundred percent. Is there anything else we should be talking about, about this new book? Yeah, I mean, I think, I I just am super excited about it. Like it feels like a culmination book. You know, it feels like, you know, this is arguably the last in this series mm. because we've covered the game animals and, you know, now it's fish and seafood. And I'm, I'm, I may or may not do a plant book. Um, uh, and if I do do a foraging book, I'm not going to step on Sam's toes. I'm mm-hmm. going to focus on the West coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it feels kind of like the, the, uh, maybe this is the kind of last of that triplet title, you know, cause all my books are like hunt, gather, cook and buck, buck, moose and right. buck, cocktail, no client and supper. That- um, I, I think the cool thing about it is that the process of writing this book took a lifetime. Whereas the others were more of a project. This feels a bit more like a memoir. There's a lot of personal information in it. Uh, There's a lot of stories in it. There's fam, my family's in it. That's cool. Um, And I think the, uh, accessibility of this book is exponentially larger, especially than the last one, because there's only 2 million upland, upland hunters in, in North America. That includes Canada anybody can buy fish and anybody can, anybody, you know, can just go to a fish market. And so this book is as accessible to anybody who just goes to a fish market as it is to an actual angler. And like, it is the first book I think I've written where gunfire is not involved. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I am really a little nervous, definitely excited about, uh, the, possibility of having a book that is applicable to uh, not just the hook and bullet crowd. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the hardest part about this is going to be to spread the word. So um, it will, in Canada, it'll be available on amazon.ca, but it will also be available um, distributed in regular bookstores by uh, Chelsea Green is actually the the, uh, the company that is distributing the book in, in brick and mortar stores all over. Okay. Um, so you'll be able to get it just like any you would any other book in Canada and definitely United States too. And the only thing I, I like, I, this book is going to live and die off of whether people like it or not. And if you, all I can say is if you get it and you like it, tell somebody else, because in this media environment, the only way that these things have any success is through word of mouth and through, uh, they call it social validation is the actual term. It's like, so, you know, leaving a review on Amazon or, Right. Or, or social media or that kind of thing. And, and it's, it's daunting. It's daunting because here's a book that could potentially do very well. And because it could help a lot of people become better fish cooks, not just anglers. And, but people have to know it exists. Right. So get it, read it. Yeah. Leave you can a review. Now. You can, What's that? 
you can pre-order it now. It will um, either through Amazon or through my website, uh, which is which is the easiest way to get to my website is hunttogethercook.com. Oh, okay. Actually, but that just redirects it to honest-food.net. Hunter Angler Gardener Cook is the name of the website. That's really the core of what I do. I mean, it's uh, I have a pretty strong Instagram presence um, mm-hmm. where I'm Hunt Gather Cook on Instagram. Yeah. I, and I that's the social media I like the best. Um, the website is, of course, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. And then I do run a Facebook group. It's a private group um, called Hunt Gather Cook. And it's cool because it's got, God, it's got 22,000 members now. And it's a no drama group. It has everything from, you know, people who really adore the former administration to people who really hated the former administration and, awesome. and everything in between. And, yeah. and so there's zero politics. There is, um, I police it very heavily for that because it's, it's important for people to come together over what they do share, which is a love of wild food. And, you know, you have to answer questions to get in so that, um, uh, so that I know that you're not some, some weird bot from Indonesia or China or wherever. <laughs> yeah. It's a fantastic group actually. I, and you police that you moderate that whole thing yourself. Yeah. I, I mostly do all the moderating. There's a couple other people. I have a couple friends, a guy named Sean, a guy named Christian who helped mm. me out. Very cool. Well, Hank, thank you very much for coming on the silver core podcast. As yeah, usual, no it was a pleasure speaking with you always i can't wait to get to canada sometime someday you'll let us back in <laughs> soon soon it's happening soon that's <laughs> anyway. it they actually have bad plans for that uh they say uh yeah they say yeah, they, they say, say that you're gonna get a vaccine too yeah they said that too <laughs> yeah well, they say fourth of july or no you guys said that fourth of july the borders are open that's, oh really that's okay. what uh that's what we saw Brandon that goes well for the hunting season it does it does yeah thanks hank yeah thanks for having me on